Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt, and this is The Hangover, a limited-run podcast from The Dispatch and Dispatch Media that aims to figure out how Republicans took the shortest trip for a party in nearly 70 years, from total control in Washington to absolute minority. The GOP doesn't seem very interested in understanding why, so we'll have to do it for them. How did the surprise success of 2016 give way to defeat, an effort to steal the election, and the siege of the U.S. Capitol? And what comes next? Richard Brookheiser is one of the preeminent American historians of his generation. His books and documentaries on the Founding Fathers, particularly Alexander Hamilton and George Washington, are essentials. His biography of Abraham Lincoln, Founder's Son, brought a new understanding and elevation of Lincoln's place in history. A prolific journalist and cultural observer, he is the longtime senior editor of National Review. Brookheiser and his wife, Jean Safer, a noted psychiatrist and determined liberal, co-authored a recent book, I Love You, But I Hate Your Politics. It drew on their more than three decades of marriage to help Americans reestablish healthy dialogue in an era of toxic partisanship. There is no one better to help us understand the context of the Republican populist revolt and its place in American political history or what those partisan passions mean for the health of the Republic. Hi, Richard. Thank you for being with us. We are grateful indeed. Um, The question that I wrestle with a lot, and I think only history can answer for us in any satisfying way, is am I too concerned or not concerned enough? And I don't just hear mean, you know, the topic of this discussion, this podcast is about what happened in the Republican Party specifically, but obviously that fits into a larger political dynamic. And some days I'm sanguine. Well, this is messy right now, but it's always messy. And then other days I think, oh dear, we've, we've crossed a Rubicon here and I don't know if we can put it back. So, so how do you answer the question? Well, I think uh, Trump had his day, uh, but it's past. I mean, it, it's not totally gone, obviously. He's still around. Uh, He still has aspirations to be a force in the party, in the Republican Party. He still is a force in the Republican Party, but he's not the president anymore. Uh, He talks about he'll be the presumptive nominee in 2024. Uh, We'll see. You know, I don't rule it out. It could happen. But uh, 2024 is a long ways away. And and Harold Macmillan, the uh, prime minister of of Great Britain in the late 50s, early 60s, he he had a little catchphrase. He would say, events, dear boy, events. <laughs> That's right. Stuff happens. Stuff will happen uh, between now and then. Stuff is already happening. Trump is not the president now. Biden is the president. Biden is, sets the agenda. It's, you know, he's doing stuff. So the question is, how bad is it? Uh, how good is it? Uh, what do you, what do we do about it? How do we how do we fight it? Is there any way to make them better? These are the kinds of questions that will come to preoccupy Republicans more than what do you think of the Donald? When we think about how the Republican Party changed from, let's say, the 2010 Tea Party eruption, right? So you have this this burst of populist energy that comes into the Republican Party 
triggered by Barack Obama's election and as he's trying to put his policies into place, there's this backlash. Um, how different was that from other populist, and here I mean lowercase insurrections, insurgencies? How, how did that, the beginning of the populist moment in the Republican Party, how does that compare to what came before it? Similar pop, or it, are there similar popular moments, populist moments in the past? Well, I, I was thinking of how it contrasts with what followed it, the Trump period that followed it. And I think the two, the two big benchmarks are, first of all, the Tea Party, I think, was more than anything else stimulated by one word. That word was trillion. Mm. You know, for the first time, we spoke of deficits, budgets, whatnot, using the T word. And in 2010, that seemed new and alarming. You know, now it's just, hey, hey, a trillion, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there. Uh, Trump certainly didn't care about trillions, and therefore the Republican Party ceased to care. And that's that's a permanent effect, which I think Donald Trump had played a role in, but probably would have happened anyway, because uh, these things are very hard to unwind, probably impossible to unwind. So, so that that's one difference. The other difference is remember when the Tea Party had this big rally on the on the Mall in Washington, and they cleaned up afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then then there's the January six riot. So that's uh, that's a compare and contrast moment, sort of the end of the Trump era versus the beginning of the Tea Party era. Mm-hmm. Um, I often talk about the period from, and I'm cribbing you here uh, because you definitely informed my thinking on the subject, um, that the period in the United States from, let's say, the Kennedy assassination to the fall of uh, Saigon, uh, so 63 to 75, was this horrible, tumultuous period. A lot of good stuff happened. But the unravel you, you described the bubble that happened in mid-century America. The, the popping of that bubble was violent, was chaotic, was, uh, made people very uneasy about the future. How, how should we think about where we are now versus where we were in, say, 1975? Well, I, you know, I, and I do remember 1975. I think that was a much worse moment. Uh, look at the riots that we had in the late 60s and, and going on a bit. About by 1975, they were over. They were done with. They'd been horrible. I mean, they destroyed major cities. Detroit never came back. Newark never came back. Uh, parts of Los Angeles uh, are still limping along from those days. Uh, 1975, uh, communism was on the march worldwide. We'd been we'd lost the Vietnam War. Cuban troops were taking over chunks of Africa. Now think of that. The new imperialism. Uh, all the colonial powers had been chased out of Africa, the Brits, the French, finally the Portuguese, and they were being replaced by Cuban troops propping up communist governments here and there. It was just a very uh, depressing time. Now, the, the good news of that is it ended. We got out of it. 
uh, right choices were made by voters and by the politicians they elected. And, and the 80s, I would argue, were better and different. But, uh, but yeah, that, that whole period from the, from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, and, and you pointed out uh, good things were accomplished also. Uh, segregation was finally routed uh, in its bastion in the South, and people also uh, began to pay attention to more covert forms of it in the North. I mean, not in terms of uh, colored drinking fountains, but you know, labor unions that, that really kept blacks out and, and so on and so on. And those, that all came under scrutiny. So I don't want to, I don't want to paint those, those uh, 10 or 12 years as entirely bad, but there was just a lot of crazy stuff went down. And, and when we look at our, our problems today, it, it can be good to look back and see that, well, yeah, we've had things as bad and arguably worse. So, uh, after your vice president and president both resign, <laughs> uh, the uh, Republicans came surprisingly. If, if when you look back at the 1976 election, it seems improbable that Gerald Ford would have done as well as he did in 1976, uh, given what had transpired in the previous two or three years for Republicans. Uh, uh, that that truth uh, then. Uh, uh, plays out again in the seven, in the seventy-eight midterms, right? And I have to go back then to find a point where I see the Republican Party in at least as much of a quandary. Uh, but the distance, as you just point out, from seventy-six to Morning in America and Ronald Reagan is just four years. Do, do you think the Republican Party could pull off such a hat trick as that again to to turn it around so quickly? Well, we'll have to see. I mean, it will depend on two things. It will depend on what Republicans come up, and it will depend on what the Democrats do. Uh, how how will they they fare? Uh, they have a, a tricky situation in the Senate. They've got a a majority in the House, but it's a narrow one. Uh, with with Trump being out of the White House, that removes a powerful incentive to unity for them. You know, they can't all link arms and, and say how bad Trump is. I mean, they can still do that, but but now now since they've won, they've got to govern, and they'll quarrel with each other about that. Uh, we're seeing this uh, in a, in a small scale in my home state, New York, where Governor Andrew Cuomo seems to be incinerating before <laughs> our eyes. And a lot of this is the left in his own party, the further left than he is, who have never liked him. They they sense weakness and they're really going after him. And could this play out nationally? We'll have to see. Without the th- without the threat of Trump and the unity that he brings, Democrats could certainly squander the opportunity. That's right. There's a there's a there's a lot of talk and I would say a lot of loose talk, uh, about how maybe the two-party system is uh, nearing the end of its viable life. And I can think of times in my years where this was said to be true. Uh, And certainly in 1992, uh, we would have all said, yes, I don't know, the the duopoly may be threatened. Um, When we think about the parties over history, over time, and our system. 
how sturdy does the two-party structure look to you now compared to the past? I think it's sturdy. I think it's always been sturdy. Occasionally, a major party has died and been replaced by another major party. The Federalist Party uh, died after the War of 1812. And then after some thrashing around, the Whig Party emerged, and then that died in the early 1850s, and then the Republican Party emerged. But there have always been, it seems, since the 1790s, when post-constitutional party politics emerged, it's emerged in a two-party form. That seems to be the American dynamic. It seems to be baked in the system. I think it probably has to do with first-past-the-post elections and the fact that uh, we don't have a parliamentary system. Uh, We've got a Congress which is elected by itself and for itself, and then we have an executive who is similarly elected by himself and for himself. And that seems to pull everything towards two contending parties. And by now, I think Democrats and Republicans, those names will persist. Now they change their identity. You know, look look at what the Democratic Party was, say, in the late 19th century. You know, the Democratic Party relied on murdering black people in the South and plundering cities in the North. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's 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 not uh, exactly uh, what it is now. Well, maybe it's plundering cities in the North, but it's certainly, <laughs> it's certainly not the party of murdering black people in the South, as it was once upon a time. So it changed. And and uh, similarly, you, you could say the Republican Party, which was the anti-populist party in the 1890s and 1900, uh, they, they were the people who beat William Jennings Bryan and this great populist uprising. Thrice. But uh, twice. Well, thrice, <laughs> three times. Thrice. Three yeah. times. That's right. Uh, but, but now uh, they seem to be the uh, working man's party or the white working man's party. Maybe not entirely the white working man's party, but anyway, they seem to be at least aspiring to be the more populist of the two parties. Uh, certainly the Democrats are the party of the, uh, of the rich, uh, of the, of the ultra rich, you know, Silicon Valley and, and, and so on. But, uh, so parties, the parties do change their identities. They do mutate over time. But I think um, we will have Democrats and Republicans with us for the rest of my lifetime. Uh, May it be long. Um, Before we, I want to come back to this coalitional question, because I've thought a lot about how if you have the New Deal coalition, you're going to have New Deal kind of policies for the Republican Party. Um, If you are the party of working class whites, you're going to have the, you're going to have policies that uh, reflect the the desires and interests of those folks. But I, the other day, was uh, telling young people about why they should read Federalist 10 and why this is, uh, to understand faction uh, and that what we're experiencing is not new, right? It's not new. Uh, Brother Madison said, this is what's going to happen. Uh, faction is an inevitable byproduct of liberty, that if people are free, that they're going to align themselves into factions. Uh, better to address the questions of faction than try to prevent it wholly. They put up a lot, the, the framers 
put together a pretty slick package to deal with uh, potent faction. Um, we have dismantled a lot of that over the past two centuries. Um, what could we be doing now, practically, that might honor what what Madison and the boys were talking about in terms of controlling the consequences of faction, not trying to prevent faction? Well, let, let's go back to Brother Madison, because, of course, he writes Federalist 10 uh, during the battle to ratify the Constitution. This is before the Constitution is in place and up and running. After it's in place and up and running, he writes more essays, and he writes a series of essays for a newspaper that his, his party controls in the national capital called the National Gazette. And there he lays out a program for his party. You know, Madison didn't stop at the Federalist Papers. He kept thinking and he kept thinking. And one of the sunbursts he had was that, uh, lo and behold, we now have parties. So let's make sure that my party, i.e. the good party, beats <laughs> the Federalist Party, the bad party, which he defined as the party of the opulent. Now, I was saying that, you know, parties change their identity over the years, but one thing in the Democratic Party, which is the oldest political party in the world, except maybe the Tories in England, the one thing in its identity that has never changed is that point that James Madison makes in like 1792, that we are the party that opposes the opulent. Now, and is, the decadent. Well, the opulent, these are Hamilton and his rich banker buddies, his his investor buddies. Who, well, you know those New York guys are the worst. Yeah, you, you <laughs> do, absolutely. Now, was James Madison a horny-handed son of toil? No, he was a wealthy planter, and so was Thomas Jefferson. They, they owned people. I mean, how much more opulent can you get? But that was their... That was their persona. That was their shtick. That was their program. Let's mm -hmm. let's call it by a non-insulting name. That was their program, and it's remained in the DNA of their party uh, until today. So, uh, so yes, Madison had identified factions as a reality, and it's it's something that a system has to be built strongly enough so that they don't tear themselves and the country apart in their inevitable contentions. Uh, but then he does go on to become the, the willing and enthusiastic leader of one of these factions or parties because he thinks, well, there, there are certain eternally good policies and we're in favor of those. And unfortunately, my former friend Hamilton and all his pals have these bad ideas and we, and we have to oppose him. So uh, you, you might say that, that the seeds of, of um, chipping, oh, seeds of chipping away, what a mixed metaphor, <laughs> the process of dismantling the barriers to faction began very soon, like maybe five years after that essay was written and it was begun by the author of that essay himself, or he mm -hmm. had a role in it. I think the system is strongly enough built that it will hold. It can take a lot of modification. 
And there have been a lot of modifications. I mean, we once had senators elect by state, elected by state legislators, which gave states a lot more power in the federal system. Um, we don't have that anymore. Senators are popularly elected. And, you know, on and on and on. We, we can go through a whole list of changes. But nevertheless, I think uh, the system that they built is sturdy enough uh, to, to, to take a lot of punishment. And also this innovation of parties and having two of them itself is a stabilizing force. You know, we are not uh, the Weimar Germany uh, with, with, you know, a par- an ultra-parliamentary system and people, don't, Nazis and communists going to each other's throats. We aren't present-day Israel which, after all, is a very successful country. But look how many parties they have. It's like you get two Israelis and they form a party. <laughs> right. I love every time somebody's got to find out where the kosher butchers are on certain questions because they're important to the coalition. This is this is parliamentary government at its finest. Right. And it, and it goes from Arab communists to, to, to you know, Jews so orthodox, they're, they're awaiting the Messiah tomorrow. You know, that, that's quite a range. That's a much bigger range than, than we have here. Uh, and we don't have that because we've got these two uh, sort of shaggy monster uh, big parties that are uh, have to be by nature at least somewhat coalitional. And, and that is a factor, I think, for stability. So are we more drunk on faction than we were before. It seems like, and it's hard to know, uh, I am a, uh, a, a Scrivener uh, when it comes to history compared to you, but even in my own lifetime, uh, it seems like the intensity of faction and the intensity of partisanship is greater than it was before. And I'm including in this the Clinton impeachment. I'm including this, the fight over the Iraq war. I'm including uh, 25 years of pretty intense and intensifying partisanship. Is this different than what came before it in recent history or in past history? is, is Is the American proclivity towards faction and partisanship stronger now than it was before? Well, you know, maybe stronger than it was early in our lifetime, but but I think there was an odd bubble in American life from Pearl Harbor to, say, the Vietnam War. Uh, and, and Pearl Harbor, you know, wiped out a bitter dispute of should America enter the Second World War. And there were lots of Americans who thought no. I mean, everybody knows about Charles Lindbergh and Philip Roth wrote that novel about imagining he'd been elected president, what would have happened. But there were plenty of Americans who, who did not want to get involved after Pearl Harbor that vanished. And we were united to fight World War II. And then, lo and behold, after that, the Cold War begins. And we were largely united uh, in that struggle and really until the Vietnam War. And then, then it unraveled. And I would say that that was returning to a level of partisanship that we have had uh, throughout our history. Uh, I write a lot about uh, the founding period. And if you want to read crazy polemics, I mean, crazy partisan polemics, you have to go back to our, our friends, the founding fathers. 
once they had their party system up and running and contending. Uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison's party, they said and they thought that their enemies were monarchists, monarchists and British agents. They're saying this of Alexander Hamilton, who, you know, fought fought the British in the Revolutionary War. He was a soldier for six years, but all of a sudden he's become a British agent. And then the Federalists in their turn said, well, if, if Jefferson and his guys get in, they're going to erect guillotines in this country because they like the French Revolution and they'll bring it over here. Well, yeah, they did like the French Revolution, but they weren't going to set up guillotines over here. And indeed, they didn't. You know, but it was this this frantic partisanship in the 1790s, and then you can go through American history and find and and find many other examples of it. So uh, yes, it's bad now, um, or it's 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 frantic now. But I think franticness and frenzy is probably the norm. And the reason it seems alarming to uh, to older people is that in our youth we caught the tail end of an unusual period of, of, of unity, uh, which I would argue went uh, from Pearl Harbor to, to the Vietnam War. But so now, now we're back to the norm. So, you know, go at it. Throw those roundhouse punches, uh, you know, crazy conspiracy theories and, and, and allegations and everything is the worst thing that's ever happened. Uh, except the thing that's going to happen tomorrow, which will be even worse. <laughs> Politics. I, 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 people forget, for example, to your point, people forget about in the 1940 election uh, that the Nazis gave $5 million to an effort in the United States to beat Roosevelt, that the, their most significant act was to buy radio airtime across the country for John L. Lewis to give an address to the workers of the United States to defeat Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You want foreign meddling in an election. I'll give you foreign meddling in an election. You got a briefcase full of Nazi cash buying radio time for uh, a, a labor leader to de- denounce the president. Now, did, did, was Lewis aware of this? It is unclear what all Lewis was aware of. There was an American uh, businessman who had been uh, Davis, who had been uh, providing oil for the Wehrmacht uh, uh, up to that point, who was the willing agent of uh, the Nazis. And he was, I don't know how much Lewis knew about where the money was coming from, but that's where the money came from. And uh, things get weird uh, in politics. That's pretty bad. I mean, that that's worse than Carter Page. <laughs> <laughs> if, if where there one, was nothing. Where it turns out there was nothing. This is where, where there was nothing there. Um, so on these coalitions, the Democrats are uh, in one way trying to remake sort of the Eisenhower coalition with voters of color uh, and affluent whites. Right. Uh, so that if they could put together the 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 not permanent, but long term majority for the Democrats would be similar to what Ike had, where you have prosperous suburbanites and educated folks uh, on the Republican team, but also still had overwhelming support from African or, or majority support from African-Americans. Um, the. Republicans seem to be trying to recreate uh, the New Deal coalition, where you have working class whites, 
especially in the interior of the country. Uh, both sides are missing something. But it seems like there is that lane drift that is happening now where the Republicans are sliding over and their policies, I, uh, you know, they are much more conscious about using terms like blue collar and working class and working party and all of that stuff uh, versus uh, to try to raid the Democrats turf. Do you see this as a uh, not the way forward, but a way forward for Republicans? Well, it, it, it's certainly a way that a lot of people are talking about. That, that sounds like a, a very milk and water <laughs> answer to your question, but, you know, we'll have to see how it pans out. And, you know, you could, you could credit and you should credit Donald Trump with playing a role in that shift. I don't think he originated it. There were, there were, there were indications of it earlier. Uh, you know, Jack Kemp, used to talk a little bit about this kind of thing. I mean, he had he had other uh, voter targets in view as well, but he always said, oh, I'm, I'm from Buffalo or I'm from the Buffalo area. Uh, I have been in a, uh, a labor union. Wasn't he in the football players? Uh, yeah, he like Ronald Reagan. He was a he was a labor leader. Right. And he was he was always very proud of that. He wasn't big on right to work laws at all. So you could see you could see that as a a swallow that preceded this spring, but uh, again, let's you know we'll have to we'll have to watch events as Harold McMillan said and see how this plays out. If you were to, if you could write a prescription for Republicans, what would it be? If you and and taking aside whether you want them to win or want them to lose or any of that stuff, what would be the best thing for them? Uh, you have a, a, you know, your perspective on American political history, because it is rooted in the reality of the founding and because it observes uh, the orthodoxies of that, uh, I think is particularly valuable here. So if we were, if you could be the, the king for a day and set the Republican Party on a course, what would you tell them to do? Well, look, I would I would tell them to do what I tell the Democratic Party, what, what I hope they would both pay attention to, which is the most important thing in American life is liberty and being mindful of that and, and guaranteeing it and upholding it. It's what distinguishes us from every other country in the world, even even countries that are that are very good and pleasant. To live in, I think we have a stronger commitment to liberty than they do. We have had, uh, but it's not an automatic thing. Uh, it's not a perpetual motion machine. It's something that we always have to keep in view. Now, is this going to win them elections? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's what I. Uh, that's what I tell them to do. Uh, to to think about that. Be mindful of that. Uh, never. Never forget it, and all the all the all the fun of of partisanship and bashing the other side and winning this vote and that vote. Uh, never lose sight of of liberty, please. Uh, amen to that. Uh, now, lastly, on the matter of how Donald Trump came to be the Republican nominee and how he came to be president. Um. If, um, if we look at the factors that lead up to this, certainly technological change is a factor, right? Uh, the rise of social media made possible a kind of populism that had been 
hard to reach, as you say, for about a century, right? You have to go back a long time to get, or you have to go at least back to Huey Long and the radio uh, to find uh, a, a way for a populist leader to get a hold of a new technology and really rile them up. Um, so technology has got to be a part of it. Uh, and weak parties have to be a part of it too, right? The Republican Party of the old days, of the old era, prior to campaign finance law changes and and, and all these other things, would have probably been able to stop uh, the hostile ta- a hostile takeover like that. Um, all these factors. What do you see as the as how for good or for ill? How did it happen? We also have to add uh, the personal X factor. I have a very low opinion of Donald Trump, but I do concede that he is brilliant at putting himself out there. Now, this doesn't always work for him because what he puts out there is himself. <laughs> and, and there can be, you know, problems with that. But my late mother-in-law had a phrase. She said there were people who, who would paint their tuchus purple and put it on stage. <laughs> For 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 people people who do, listeners who don't know Yiddish, it took us as your hind end, as your posterior. That's right, and 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 Donald Trump was brilliant at that. You know, he he was brilliant at that. My colleague at National Review, Jay Nordlinger, said Donald Trump is more comfortable in front of a camera than I am in my own living room. <laughs> it's it's the more true. polite way of saying it. Uh, so, so you have to add that to, to, to the other factors that you mentioned. And then he took, you know, he took a couple of issues which are important and he managed to make them seem hugely important on, on which he staked out lonely positions, uh, immigration, you know, which, which other Republicans were either uh, taking the contrary view to his, or they, they weren't talking about it. They didn't think it was that important. You know, he made it his thing and he, and he, thought of a symbol to symbolize it, which is the wall on the Mexican border. And so he had his, his, um, a unique piece of political real estate, which he, which was important and which he persuaded people was of, of vital importance. So you add all that together, uh, and he, and he gets the nomination and then he threads the needle and wins that election. I mean, it was, you know, it was a it was a near and narrowly run thing, but he did it. And there he had a lot of help from his opponent. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, she, uh, Hillary Clinton had not was not aware of many of the factors that we've discussed here today. Right. She she was uh, thinking and uh, uh, she was not thinking about our moment. She was thinking about perhaps the moments that she had lived through in the 90s and stuff and in old politics. And she was thinking of her moment to come. Her slogan was, I'm with her. And the one, if Trump had said nothing in the election except this one sentence that he said in his nomination speech at the Republican convention, he says, I'll be for you. That was the perfect response to her slogan. Her slogan was, I'm with her. He says, no, I'll be for you. I mean, that is like in, in judo or boxing, that is like the, the perfect counterpunch, perfect counter move. And it paid off. It, and so, so how much as we think about what's next for the Republican Party or how it happened, to how this boom and bust happened for the Republicans, um, do you see Trump as a, 
more of a one-off that the, because you're, I very much agree with you. There is only one, right? It, you cannot put, it's not about policy. It's about person. It's, it's not, not about policy, but it's more about personality than policy. It's more about the energy and attitude that he brought, um, than other things. So do you see this as more of a one-off or a more of a sign of things to come in terms of what do, what voters are going to want, what they're going to respond to in the GOP? Well, we'll have to see who comes along. Is there someone who's going to come along with that talent level? Um, you, you know, on a, on a non-candidate um, level, uh, Rush Limbaugh mm-hmm. just passed. And it, it wasn't just that he had the views he had. It was the skills that he had. Uh, the National Review Institute gave him an, an award uh, a year or two ago. And he, he, in, in, his, in his acceptance speech, he said, you know, I didn't want to have the best conservative radio show. I wanted to have the best radio show. I wanted to have the best show on radio. And because he'd started off as a disc jockey and he really knew that medium and he had a feel for that medium, that was the basis. And then he brought the opinions that he had and and reaching out to an audience that wanted those opinions. But he started with this particular, this unique skill set. And, you know, similarly uh, with Trump, as I just said. So where's the talent? Will will a talent come along? Will a similar talent come along? And who will that talent be? Which side of the aisle will will he or she be on? Uh, and and what will that talent be pushing? I mean, we're going to have to watch and see that. Uh, in terms of the issue shift, I, I think we've said that this was, you know, Trump contributed to it. I think it's ongoing. It will continue on. And I think it began even before he did this, this crossing of lanes of the two parties. So that will happen. As for Trump himself, I think you know, uh, Joe Biden is a very old president, but 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 Trump is no spring chicken either, even though he's younger. Uh, certainly, I don't I don't see his family members as having anything like the, you know, pizzazz that he has. So I don't see the Trumps as being like the Kennedys, you know, mar- marching on and on. Uh, so so maybe it's the end for him and them them personally. Mm-hmm. And as for the principles, you ju- you just reminded me of Groucho Marx's line which was, these are my principles, uh, and if you don't like them, I have others. <laughs> right. Didn't Lindsey Graham say that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, again and again and again. Uh, Richard, I am so, and we are so much in your debt for you doing this and bringing this perspective to us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Everyone should read all of your books, but you know that every time I talk to you, I plug the same one, which is your Lincoln biography, uh, Founder's Son, which is just puts it in perspective and put you use using the lens of Lincoln to put the founding in perspective. I have given it to my children. I tell everybody to read it. It is a treasure. Well, thank you. It's a true fact. Uh, and so are you. Uh, so Richard Brookheiser, thanks for being with us today. And we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.